up and take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Hello, and welcome back to Silence's Platinum. I'm your host, Jessica Keaton. And this is the third entry in our series called No Talkies, Silent Forever, where we are covering silent film actors and actresses who died before they were able to appear in a talkie, cementing their fame in the silent era. This episode is going to cover four silent film daredevils who lost their lives while flying high. These four aviators were originally going to be part of the entry dealing with actors who passed away in accidents. But their stories were so compelling, and their personalities so charismatic, I had to give them their own episode. Let's begin, shall we? Sidney Rankin Drew was born on September 19, 1891, in Manhattan. He was the only child born to actors Sidney and Gladys Rankin Drew. If you're thinking these names sound kind of familiar, then you're on the right track. The Drews are linked to Hollywood royalty, the Barrymores. Lionel, Ethel, and John Barrymore were first cousins of Sidney. This makes him the first cousin twice removed from actress Drew Barrymore. In 1914, when Sidney was a teenager, his mother Gladys passed away. Later that year, his father married actress Lucille McVeigh who was only a year older than her new stepson. Lucille soon joined her new husband in the Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew Act, pretty much jumping right in the shoes of the previous Mrs. Drew. Mom and Dad didn't want their son to go into show business, so they sent him to military school in hopes of preventing it. But the strict atmosphere didn't do anything to suppress the acting gene. Sidney would make his film debut in a 1913 short called The Still Voice, which also starred his father. In the film, Sidney was billed as Sidney Rankin Jr. Throughout his career, he would also use the names Sidney Drew or S. Rankin Drew. His career just wasn't spent acting. He also directed around 14 films. And on top of acting and directing, he also wrote screenplays and scenarios for four films. The Reward in 1915, The Suspect in 1916, The Bell of the Season, and Who's Your Neighbor, both in 1917. The Bell of the Season would mark his final film appearance. Nineteen seventeen was not a year of finality, however. It was also the year his military career began. He entered the French Ambulance Service in the spring before joining the Flying Service in 1918. Soon after, he was sent to the front lines. On May 18, 1918, Drew was reported MIA. The French Army would eventually confirm that Drew's plane had been shot down over German lines and he had been killed. His remains were buried in France. It was reported that after his son died, Drew Sr. never recovered from the loss. Friends and family reported that he was very proud of his son's military career. 
It had been the military, and not the stage, that he envisioned as the right career path for his only son. A little over a year later, he too passed away. Due to his hectic performance schedule, he never really had the proper time to reflect and grieve on the loss of his son, and his friends and family believe that this led to his death at age 56. Drew Sr. was buried in the Mount Vernon Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A cenotaph for his son was also placed at his headstone. The second Mrs. Drew died of cancer at age 35 in 1925. She was buried near her parents in a Missouri cemetery. In 1919, a military post was named in honor of Sidney Rankin Drew. After this was announced, a telegram was sent by his stepmother expressing her gratitude. The message conveyed by your telegram touches me deeply, and I hasten to express my thanks to the theatrical post of the American Legion for their tribute to the memory of my husband's son in naming their organization the Sidney Rankin Drew Post. I want to express the sincere gratitude of the Rankin and Drew families, as well as my own, for their distinct honor of one who so nobly helped immortalize the theatrical profession in the war. Ormer Leslie Locklear was born on October 28, 1891, in Greenville, Texas. He was the third of nine children born to James, a carpenter, and his wife, Odessa Lula Wood Locklear. Sadly, two of Ormer's sisters, Nonetta and Ola, died in 1912 from pneumonia, just four days apart. Growing up, Ormer's ambitions leaned toward carpentry, following in his father's footsteps. The daredevil stunts he would one day become famous for was just something he did on the side for extra money, and for the thrills. He was working on building his own airplane when World War I broke out. He enlisted in the military as a flight instructor, and was actually one of the few that could, slash would, make repairs to the airplane while they were still in flight. It was during his stint in the military that he saw his first barnstorming show, and he thought, I can do that too. After leaving service, he joined a barnstorming show, and soon after, he and a few of his friends were able to raise money to purchase their own airplane and create their own show. While performing a show at an airfield owned by Sidney Chaplin, the brother of Charlie, the young Daredevil was offered stunt work for a film that would actually end up being a starring vehicle for him. 1919's The Great Air Robbery was a Universal film release that Carl Lemley, the head of Universal, wanted to serve as a way to highlight Locklear's aerial stunts that were starting to create a buzz. To help promote the film, Ormer performed one of the most daring stunts that was portrayed in the film. For the stunt, Ormer would walk from one plane to another with both planes in flight, without a parachute. Newsreel cameras were on hand to capture the amazing feat and help to give audiences a taste of what this upcoming movie had in store. The film was quite popular, and many, including Ormer, thought there would be a follow-up. But nope! For reasons unknown, Lemley refused to option a sequel, prompting a lawsuit against Universal by Ormer for $25,000.
Unfortunately, Ormer's second film would also end up being his last. On August 2nd, 1920, and the last day of filming for The Skyway Man, the film cast and crew were working on some night shots on an oil field in La Brea, California. Ormer, along with his friend and fellow daredevil, Milton Skeets Elliott, were set to perform a stunt that involved their airplane nosediving into the ground before pulling up just in time to avoid collision. I have heard a couple different versions on who in fact was in the pilot seat. I had always assumed it was Ormer, because that's what generally has been passed down. However, I've also read in contemporary articles that Skeets Elliott was the pilot, and Ormer was his co-pilot. Either way, the plan was for the lighting crew to cut the spotlights so that the pilots could see the ground and pull up out of the nosedive in time. However, for some reason, the order to turn the lights off was not followed, and instead of pulling up in time, the plane crashed straight into the ground and burst into flames. Both pilots were killed instantly. Ormer was 29 years old, and Skeets was just 26. The cast, crew, and scattered spectators on set were understandably horrified at what they had just witnessed. Ormer's girlfriend at the time, actress Viola Dana, would recall the event during a 1980 interview for their amazing documentary called Hollywood. I guess there was practically nothing left of him because the, those Jennies, you know, they were very fragile. I, they. Somebody picked me up, but I started to run for the plane, and somebody said, grab her. Grab her and take her home. And uh, I guess I was just kind of crazy. I couldn't believe what had happened. and, And when you're young, those things are very shocking. I don't even like to talk about it. According to an article in Talking Screen magazine, Ormer was originally supposed to do the stunt solo, telling Skeets, I'll take her up, you stay with the girlfriend. However, at the last minute, these plans changed, and the two men both boarded the airplane. Ormer was buried at the Greenwood Memorial Park in Mausoleum in Fort Worth, Texas, next to his two sisters. His funeral held in Hollywood included a blimp and a squadron of jets dropping roses down upon the procession. Skeets Elliott was buried next to his father at the Forest Cemetery in his hometown of Gadsden, Alabama. When asked to comment on her son's death, Odessa Locklear would tell reporters that she felt Ormer's death was just a matter of time. A friend and fellow pilot, Shirley Short, spoke to the Waco Tribune a few days after Ormer's death and alluded to the fact that Ormer may have had a premonition about his premature death. For more than a year, we were together doing stunts. During that time, Locklear laughed at the idea of danger. Until about a month ago. It was shortly before I left him that he became depressed and told me several times that he would get knocked off this summer. It worried me because it was so unlike Locklear. In true Hollywood fashion, the decision was made to rush the post-production and the release of The Skyway Man in order to capitalize on the sensational death of Ormer Locklear. The film was released on September 5, 1920 to rave audience reviews, 
but mixed critical reception. In the September 1920 issue of Motion Picture News, a review was published saying, The late Lieutenant Ormer Locklear and his trusty aeroplane fly through a great part of this picture. We think, however, that their stunts are going to be a trifle disappointing to the public, who, knowing of the star's death, are likely to expect something absolutely reckless and look for a new record and screen their deviltry. The same critic offered suggestions to anyone thinking of purchasing the film to show in their theaters. It's probably just as well not to mention too bluntly the death of the star while making this picture, as some people will feel resentment toward the producers. Fox Film Corporation, the studio behind the film, claimed that they gave 10% of the film profits to the Locklear and Elliott families. It was also rumored that the studio included the crash footage in the original release of the film, but the footage, as well as the movie itself, have vanished. Yes, I hate to say it, but this film is sadly one of the many lost silent films. Ormer was married once to Ruby Mae Graves in 1915. Ruby did not approve of his daredevil stunts and wished he could do something less reckless. Although the two would remain married until his death, the marriage was not a happy one, and they tended to lead separate lives. Even though he was still legally attached to his wife, that didn't stop Ormer from seeing other women. His most frequent and famous paramour was actress Viola Dana. Viola would give details of what dating Ormer was like in the 1980 interview, again from the Hollywood documentary. I looked at this great big handsome man and he looked at me and he said, would you like to go up with me? I said, yes, I would. I'd love it. And he had green eyes too. And I want to tell you, those. we looked at each other and up I went with him in one of those old Jennies. I afterwards found out, well, that was it. We, I guess we fell in love immediately. Done everything in a plane that's to be done. Loops, I'd be done one day, we did something like 25 consecutive loops and spins and barrel rolls and we'd go under telegraph, uh, between telegraph poles under the wires and chase our friends down Hollywood Boulevard if we saw them, I'd carry a bunch of old lipsticks and we'd throw, we'd, that's how low we'd fly, we'd throw them down and then you could see them look up and say, <laughs> of course they, I think they got after him too, he left, had to leave town, he hid out for about a week. Jack Pickford, the younger brother of Mary, and friend of both Viola and Ormer, introduced the two while out at DeMille Airfield. It was rumored, quite heavily, that Ormer and Viola were engaged at the time of his death. In July of 1920, rumors began circulating that the current Mrs. Locklear would be filing for divorce from her daredevil husband and name Viola Dana as correspondent. When approached by a reporter in San Francisco with this information, Ormer was caught off guard. There's absolutely nothing in it. Everything is all right between Mrs. Locklear and myself, and I'd like to know how any such story got started. Mrs. Locklear is in Fort Worth at present, but she was with me in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. Miss Dana has been flying with me frequently, but it's only because she's very much interested in aviation and plans to learn to fly. She's going to keep right on flying with me, too. 
and Mrs. Locklear hasn't any objection. I'm certain of that. Lots of other girls at the studio have been up with me. Miss Dana isn't the only one of the screen stars to be interested in flying. Great story, Ormer. However, what he failed to mention was the fact that Viola Dana was also in San Francisco at the same time. Her excuse? I'm just here to do a little shopping and take a vacation after finishing a picture. Of course I'm going to watch Lieutenant Locklear do his stunts over Union Square. I'm keen for aviation and eager to get every chance I can to go up. Viola's mother didn't help matters much by reportedly telling the press that her daughter and Ormer were in fact going to get married, and possibly even elope. After Ormer's death, his parents sued the widowed Mrs. Locklear for their son's estate. They felt that due to the state of the Locklear marriage, Ormer would have wanted his parents to have been beneficiaries, and not Ruby. The family also reportedly had a will written up by Ormer, which gave his parents and brother Osman each $5,000. His wife was not mentioned at all in the document, and she, of course, said the will was a fake. Thankfully for her, the judge agreed, and it was thrown out. I unfortunately don't know the outcome of the whole trial, and who was awarded what. There was also a case filed either for or by Ruby Locklear in regards to the fact that she considered her husband's death an on-the-job accident. The conclusion was finally reached in September of 1921, a little over a year after the accident, that Locklear was not a contractor, as the company contended, but was an employee, and that his movements on the night of the tragedy were directed by signals from other employees on the ground. The widow Locklear was granted around $5,000 from the State Industrial Accident Commission. Ormer's legacy as one of the first on-screen barnstormers isn't completely overshadowed by his tragic death, at least in my world. From what I have read and heard in interviews, Ormer was known as a very charismatic and charming man. He loved taking up movie stars in his airplane and buzzing all over Hollywood. Actress Leatrice Joy was also a part of the 1980 documentary Hollywood, and would recount how she used to avoid Ormer on the studio lots because she was scared he would try and convince her to go flying with him. She eventually relented, and Ormer made sure to perform all kinds of tricks, dips, and dives with the young lady hanging on for dear life. Ormer had a trick that he called the Locklear Bounce, where he would ricochet off the roofs of various buildings most famously, Hollywood sound stages. You can see why Leatrice did her best to avoid him. Actress Louise Lovely, who appeared with Ormer in The Skyway Man, would speak about her co-star a few years after his death, saying, He was a true American gentleman, a daredevil who knew the meaning of danger, but did not fear it. A fine man, using fine in its best sense. At the time of his death, he seemed to have so much positivity happening in his life. He had just created his own production company, called Locklear Productions, but sadly, he died before any films could be released. Earlier, in 1916, Ormer performed with the legendary Harry Houdini. The two teamed up to perform a stunt that involved Houdini being tied to a motorcycle that was driven by Ormer, and Houdini had to escape his bindings while Ormer was driving at top speed. Needless to say, this was a big hit with spectators, and audiences were eager to see what Houdini would do next. Not to mention Ormer. Almost 100 years after his death, Ormer's charisma 
daring feats, and dashing good looks are still remembered by silent film fans, as well as fans of early aviation and barnstorming. The pilot packed in a lot of life in his almost 30 years on this earth, but he never saw his stunts as that dangerous. There's nothing dangerous in the work I do. Absolutely nothing that could be called a risk of life. Everything I do is planned methodically and is absolutely safe. This is also the same man who said, safety is my second motto. Man, I yearn for the simple days of our celebrities being famous for actual talent and moxie. Fly on forever, Ormer. B.H. DeLay was born Beverly Homer DeLay on August 12, 1891, in Alameda, California. He was the only child born to Charles, who worked as an engineer in the mining industry, and his wife, Matilda Schutz. He reportedly came from a family that had been in the entertainment industry for almost 100 years. As a student at both the University of California and the University of Heidelberg in Germany, DeLay studied engineering. He worked briefly as a race car driver before buying and running his own airport. This is what would lead him to being involved in the motion picture industry. DeLay made his screen debut as a stunt pilot for the 1921 Fox film short, The Baby. Later that same year, he appeared again as a stunt pilot in the Larry Simon vehicle, The Bellhop. DeLay's only film that he was actually cast as an actor albeit as an aviator, was 1922's Skin Deep, a Thomas Ince production that starred Milton Sills and Florence Vidor. Although he may have only been credited in three pictures, his stunt work appeared in over 50, just without credit. DeLay deserves to be remembered for being the first stunt pilot to perform stunts that are used in films even today. He was the first to leap from airplane to train and train to airplane, the first to jump off a horse to a plane, and the first to go from car to airplane. He also had the distinction of being the first stunt pilot to knock down a building with an airplane. DeLay Airfield in Venice, California was the first to have an airport with lights, and also, DeLay was instrumental in creating the first aerial police force. It's no wonder that DeLay was known as the father of professional motion picture aviators. What really attracted DeLay to the movies was the spotlight it put on his first love, aviation. He loved to barnstorm and to perform stunts for the cameras. One of his most popular stunts was throwing the first pitch at baseball games, while in the air. He also would drop flowers into the ocean in memories of soldiers lost in the war, and was part of the air funeral procession for fellow barnstormer Ormer Locklear's funeral in 1920. On July 4, 1923, DeLay was performing stunts at Ocean Park with his friend, aviator R.I. Short. DeLay was in the middle of performing a loop-the-loop when the wings of the plane folded back, sending the aircraft nose-first into the ground. Both aviators were pulled from the plane before it burst into flames, but both died from impact-related injuries. DeLay and Short were both 31 years old. Once the plane was extinguished, the remaining wreckage could be examined to determine what caused the tragic crash. It was soon discovered that the plane had been sabotaged. 
The pins holding the wings were found to be a smaller size than what they should have been. The pins were supposed to be one-half to three-fourths of an inch around, but the ones found in the wreckage were only three-eighths of an inch. Unfortunately, due to the plane catching fire, any further evidence of sabotage was destroyed. Who would want to bring down the famous daredevil? Well, he seemed to have enemies, but who they really were remains a mystery. In 1921, DeLay and his associates had to go to court in a dispute over the ownership of DeLay Airfield. A man named C.E. Fry claimed that he had bought the airfield, but could offer no proof. So, to piss off DeLay, he had some of his henchmen buddies install posts around the airport so that planes couldn't take off. After DeLay had the posts removed, Fry again sent his men over to dig trenches again, to prevent the planes from taking off. Fry would eventually end up in jail, and it would be verified that DeLay had in fact been the one to have legally purchased the airfield in 1919. An even scarier incident, just days before the accident, DeLay was walking across the Santa Monica airfield when shots were fired. The Star Tribune in Minneapolis, Minnesota posed the question, did B.H. DeLay the well-known aviator, lose his life July 4th as a result of the first aerial murder plot? Well, it seems so. Newspapers reporting his death mentioned that he left behind a widow, Juanita, but according to a 1922 article in the LA Times, the couple were at the very least separated. According to the article, DeLay was behind in alimony payments and owned his estranged wife around $120. Juanita DeLay was attempting to get a bench warrant issued for her aviator husband, but was told that this situation had not gotten that serious. It seems as though the couple was still legally married at the time of his death, even if they were separated. DeLay also left behind two young daughters, Patricia and Beverly, who were around eight and three years old at the time of their father's death. Beverly DeLay would work briefly in show business, both on screen and on the stage. She even attended high school with Judy Garland at Hollywood High for a time. Like Ormer Locklear, B.H. was, and is remembered as being a charismatic daredevil, enjoying his fame during the exciting early years of both aviation and film. Not only did he cheat death on a number of occasions, he also rubbed elbows with such Hollywood stars as Douglas Fairbanks, Ruth Rowland, Will Rogers, and Tom Mix. Even though his legacy is marred, if not amplified, by his tragic, unsolved death, B.H. DeLay should be remembered as a true daredevil who paved the way for action movies for years to come, one loop-the-loop at a time. Elsie McKay was born Elsie Gertrude McKay on August 21, 1893, in Simla, India. She was the fourth child born to James Lyle McKay, the first Earl of Inchcape and shipping magnate, and his wife, Jane Patterson. She had two older sisters, Margaret and Janet, and an older brother, Kenneth, and a younger sister, Effie. Growing up, Elsie was close to her family, especially her father. 
She was a fearless young gal who enjoyed horseback riding, hunting, especially fox hunting, dancing, and her love for acting also began when she was still a child. She also enjoyed working in her father's office as his right-hand man. When Elsie was 24 years old, she was working as a nurse with her mother, caring for soldiers during World War I. It was here that she met actor Dennis Wyndham. The two would be married in May of that year, much to the dismay of her father. James McKay was livid that his daughter married an actor against his wishes, so much so that he disinherited her. In fact, when her younger sister Effie was married in 1920, McKay forbid her from inviting Elsie to the wedding. With no money from Dad coming in, Elsie had to find a way to make money. She decided to take to the stage in order to turn her passion into a career. Even though her father had stopped speaking to her, she didn't want to completely insult him by using her birth name as her stage name. That was when Poppy Wyndham was born. Elsie McKay, a.k.a. Poppy Wyndham, made her screen debut in 1919's Snow in the Desert. Her career was short, lasting around a year with eight credits to her name, all movies being made in the United Kingdom. Even though her career wasn't long-lasting, she made an impression on the critics and fans alike. Commenting on her first starring role in 1919's A Great Coup, one critic called Poppy the most promising of recent discoveries in the movie world, and uncommonly talented. The following year, she received an equally glowing review from the Motion Picture World magazine, who called her performance the best out of the whole cast. Great for Poppy, not so great for the other actors. In 1920, Elsie made her final film appearance and decided to take up a new hobby, piloting. She always had a love for daring stunts and fast speed with horses and automobiles, but now was the time to take her chutzpah to the skies. She became one of the first women in England to obtain a pilot's license and used that license for both everyday excursions to performing daring stunts. One time, while performing a loop-the-loop, her safety harness broke and she had to hold onto the plane for dear life while hanging outside of it. This was a new chapter in Elsie's life, and one she would enter into as a single woman. In 1922, her marriage to Dennis Wyndham was annulled, and her relationship with her estranged father was mended. On top of her aviation career, she went back to work for her father as an interior designer for his ships. Her father's right-hand man was back in his good graces. Being the first woman in England to obtain her pilot's license wasn't the only achievement Elsie wanted under her belt. She wanted to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. The trip was quite an undertaking, and Elsie didn't want a lot of hubbub around the flight. In fact, she didn't want her name even attached to the flight until after it had been completed. One of the reasons for this was because she had just mended the fences with her family and didn't want anything to upset or worry them and doing something as momentous as this would cause unnecessary stress. So, as her family and the press knew, the only pilots who would be crossing the Atlantic were Walter Hinchcliffe and Gordon Sinclair. On March 13, 1928, 
Elsie and Hinchcliffe took off in their airplane Endeavor with minimal fanfare. The press still assumed that Gordon Sinclair was the pilot accompanying Hinchcliffe on the flight. When a few found out who it really was, Elsie threatened to sue them if they leaked any of it until after she took off. The Endeavor took off without incident, and at least two eyewitnesses would spot the plane in the sky. But shortly after, the plane just vanished. The only evidence ever found were a few pieces of plane debris that washed up on the shores of Ireland roughly eight months later. Authorities assumed that the Endeavour went down somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Elsie's parents were in Egypt when they heard that their daughter's plane had been lost. They didn't believe the reports at first. Their daughter would be joining them in Egypt in a few days. She couldn't have been in that airplane. This is what they tried to tell the press. And themselves. After Elsie's death, her family saw to it that their daughter's name would live on, even after her tragic death at the age of 35. A church on an estate in Scotland owned by her father has a stained glass window dedicated to Elsie. There's also a memorial in the garden, spelling out Elsie in rhododendrons. She even has a street named after her. Obviously, the most famous female pilot is Amelia Earhart, but it's important to remember those who flew before her, like Elsie. It sounds like her home country is ensuring that she won't be forgotten. And now you too can say you know of another famous female pilot who disappeared. There you have it. The end of our tales of daredevils, barnstormers, and fearless female flyers. Our next entry in the series will cover silent film stars who passed away due to pneumonia. And believe me, there were quite a few. Make sure to rate and review the podcast in iTunes so other people can get an idea of what's in store for them. And also, well, because I want to know what you think. Also, remember to check out the Silence is Platinum blog at www.silenceisplatinum.blogspot.com for pictures and source info on this and past episodes. Also, feel free to email me at silenceisplatinumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. Speaking of saying hi, I wanted to plug my grave hunting partner in crime, Arthur Dark's amazing YouTube series called Hollywood Graveyard. If you've followed the Silences Platinum blog and Instagram page, you know that one of my favorite things to do is pay a visit to the stars of yesteryear and pay my respects. If you want to take an actual tour of some of the most famous cemeteries in Los Angeles, then check out Hollywood Graveyard on YouTube. Arthur knows where all the bodies are buried and will show you who's who and who's where. You can also follow him on Instagram at Hollywood Graveyard. So, until next time, remember the immortal words of Miss Mary Pickford. Adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. Shh, stay silent.